0: Thank you guys for being here today. Uh, We got another study today where uh, if you come through, a lot of times you go, man, is the pastor reading my mail, right? This is one of those because we're going to talk about a word that begins with the letter C, commitment, okay? We're going to talk about commitment. And so uh, there are some of you that are going to hear this today, and it will be reaffirming that you need to make a commitment either to Christ or to someone in your life or to a job situation uh, or maybe even to discipleship. But there are going to be others of you that hear it today. And it is the Lord slamming the brakes on something, and you need to slow down and really think it through. So if you're taking notes today, I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, and then 1 Kings 22. Uh, we are coming into the home stretch of the life of Ahab, and uh, we still got a ways to go on Elijah, uh, but this chapter should be the end of old Ahab, all right? So again, Luke 14, and we start with this question today. Have you ever had to make a really big commitment? one that you might start with a capital C, right? It's a big commitment that uh, would end up changing your life forever. If you've been around Waterfront for any amount of time, you've probably heard this story. It's one of my favorites to tell. Uh, The first time I really felt the weight of heavy commitment happened when Autumn and I got on the same cell phone plan, all right? So back in the day, do any of you remember when you had to make long distance phone calls, when you like bought a phone card and had to go and dial in? How many of you remember that? Raise your hand. You're old. I just want you to know that. All right, there you go. We're all old, if we remember that. Back in the day, I my dorm room, it was like a payphone. the dorm phone was, and you had to put in a phone card number just to call mama and dad at home. And so I'm telling you, just a different time the way it's all changed. And so uh, the introduction of cell phones happened, and it used to be back in the day, cell phones were like 50 cents a minute. And, uh, can you imagine 50 cents a minute on the cell phone plans? And so uh, T-Mobile introduced something revolutionary, what they called the Friends and family plan. And the friends and family plan meant that you could pick five people to be in your circle, to be in your five, that you did not get charged by the minute, but you could talk to in an unlimited capacity. So, Autumn and I are not in the five at this point, and we've just started dating. We've been together about two months, and I'm telling you, we weren't just in love. We were in love. All right, Happened very fast. It was so special. I had dated someone for three and a half years before Autumn and I got together. We've been single. I've been single for about a year and a half. Same thing for Autumn. She dated somebody for about a year and a half and then was single for a year. And uh, when we met, it was like, whoa, this is easy. This is great. And I mean, I'm telling you, it just, was, it just worked. It just was very, very special. Have you ever heard the old timers say, uh, the, uh, you, when you know, you know? This was one of those where I feel like I understand what the old timers were trying to say was, it just fits. It's like puzzle pieces that fit together. And uh, it's tough to explain, but when you know, you know. It just fits together. So all that to say, it comes together in this moment where we're having these feelings that it could be forever, but we've not really talked about marriage yet, and uh, we've been dating a couple of months, and uh, my buddy Cody Dixon was working at a cell phone store, and he goes, man, you don't need another $500 cell phone bill. He goes, you need to come in, and it wasn't quite $500, but he goes, you don't need a big cell phone bill. He goes, you need to come in, and we'll get you guys set up on a plan that's good for both of you, and I'll never forget, we're at the T-Mobile shop, Cody's talking us through the friends and family plan, and then all of a sudden, he slides a contract across to me, and I don't know what it was. Was, but all of a sudden, I feel like my heart's about to beat out of my chest. I'm realizing it's a one-year commitment that I'm about to sign my name to, and all these feelings, all these emotions, again, this idea of when you know, you know, right? All of a sudden, it's coming into a point where I've got to commit. And I remember, sweat starts to form on my brow, my chest starts to feel so heavy. Cody looks at me, and he goes, are you okay? And I go, I just need a minute. And so I walk outside, and up against the wall of the TJ Maxx and in Lubbock, Texas. That is where the big C commitment moment happened for me. I'm up against the wall and Autumn looks at me and she goes, you don't have to do this. You don't have to sign this thing. And I remember I looked at her and I was like, I just like you a whole lot. And like, a year from now, are you still going to like me? And she just smiled and she said, a year from now, I'm still going to like you. I said, more than a year from now? And she said, more than a year from now. And that was the first conversation we had about marriage. And the rest is history. We've been married now 16 years. And it started with a conversation over a cell phone plan in front of the TJ Maxx. Isn't that what ends up being the monuments in your life? These weird locations where, again, you have no clue that the big decision's coming. You have no clue that the big commitment is coming. And yet, every time I pass the TJ Maxx, I remember that was where we committed our love to one another, all right? Now, listen, I share that with you to say this, okay? When making a big commitment, Even Jesus says it's a really good thing for you to count the cost. It's not a a faithlessness for you to rationalize out and figure out if something fits. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 28. He's talking, by the way, about committing to discipleship here in full context, but I think it fits for any major decision that we make. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Stop right there for just a minute. In a city that likes to plan, the word from Jesus is don't lay the foundation and then try to figure it out later. He says make sure you think about it before you make the commitment because then people look at your life and they see a lot of things that are unfinished. And we serve a God of completion. In fact, scripture says he who started the work will be faithful to complete it in you. There is no wasted motion when it comes to God Almighty. Every movement, every decision is is truly grounded in him wanting to complete the work that he started in you. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? In where we work, in who we marry, and where we live and how we live and what we spend our money on. We must count the cost and seek the Lord before making a commitment. If you've written that quote down, write down or circle that word before in the statement. Okay? And where we work, and who we marry, and where we live, and what and how we live and what we spend. We must count the cost and seek the Lord before making a commitment. Autumn and I recently, for Christmas, bought our daughter Lulu a dollhouse uh, that we uh, that we found on Facebook Marketplace. If you have not shopped on Facebook Marketplace yet, people will dump stuff for nothing. I'm just telling you, it's like a garage sale for the whole region. I mean, it's just crazy the way you get to see this stuff. So we find this dollhouse. It was a custom build, but we did not count the costs. This thing is huge, okay? And so it was so big, we couldn't get it into our daughter's room. And so now, because we didn't measure, we didn't count the cost, there is a divot out of part of our ceiling where we Tried to turn it through uh, where it did not fit. And so now uh, Lulu is in a completely different room. We had to completely reshuffle the house because of the dollhouse that was bought on Facebook Marketplace. All right? That's the way it goes. With the dollhouse, it's one thing, that's our life, isn't it? We make a commitment to something and we think, oh, that's a pretty good idea. I don't need to know the details. We'll figure it out as we go. And then before you know it, you're going, whoa, I gotta build my whole life around this decision. Everything changes because I didn't quite count the cost. Now just for the record, there are some of you who are so non-committal in this room and you just heard that and went, yep, that's why I commit to nothing ever, no one at any time. If that's you, your problems go a little bit deeper, all right? So here's the deal. Commitment is not bad. God has gifted us to commit to one another, and there is a time when life is so much richer because we do. For those of you who are commitment heavy, I like to call it the difference between a pioneer and a settler, okay? Pioneers want nothing tying them down. A settler doesn't mean you settle for things, but it means you desire to homestead. You desire to have a spot that belongs to you that you can call home. If you're a homesteader, Be real cautious in who it is that you commit to because you desire to commit. For you pioneers out there, you don't need to live on the range forever. Eventually, you will miss out on a richer, fuller life if you don't come to a point where you finally settle in, count the cost, and commit. It begs our big million-dollar question today. How do the godly process making a major commitment? How do the godly process Making a major commitment. We're going to dig through as we go, uh, as we study this, uh, and we're going to dig through uh, starting in 1 Kings chapter 22. Flip over to 1 Kings chapter 22. And we're going to start in verse 1. This, by the way, again, is the beginning of the end for old Ahab. Uh, He will be dead by the end of the passage. uh, And this story that we're going to go through today is really a microcosm of the macro, the real struggle that he has. He struggles with lordship and God being in charge. Look at what it says, 1 Kings chapter 22, starting in verse 1. It says, for three years, there was no war between Aram and Israel. If you'll underline Aram, remember, Aram is what we would call modern-day Syria, and specifically Benadad, the one who caused all that trouble that we studied about months ago. Benadad is still up to his same old tricks. It's the reason the Lord called for Benadad to be put to death. It was not because the Lord had no mercy on ben It's because he would offend again. He would continue to cause Israel trouble, and the treaty that he signed so that he could walk out of the country of man. He has broken the treaty the second he walks past the boundaries of the country. Uh, Again, he deserved to be held accountable for the things that he had done, not because there was no mercy, but because there was no repentance in his life. So look at what happens next. It says, but in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. And the king of Israel had said to his officials, don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And yet we're doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram. Stop right there for just a in the treaty that was signed with uh, Benadad, specifically Ramoth Gilead was supposed to be given back. And Benadad goes, Yeah, sure, I'll give you whatever it is you want. I'll sign whatever documents you want. But he has no integrity. His signature means nothing. And as soon as he walks out, he does not give the city back. And that really bothered not just Ahab, but it also bothered this man, Jehoshaphat, that we're about to meet. It says, Verse 4 So he asked Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, Will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? Now look at this, it says Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are and my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Look at verse 5. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, look at this. First, seek the counsel of the Lord. Circle, highlight, and underline, first seek the counsel of the Lord. So what had happened with the nation of Israel is years before, the 12 tribes that formed the nation of Israel had split so that Judah, the largest tribe, became its own country. And as Israel runs after foreign gods, as Israel makes poor decisions, and what we talked about with Ahab as their leader, Jehoshaphat is from a godly family, godly lineage. He makes good connecting decisions. Decisions to Yahweh. He is godly in nature and tries to establish decisions in that capacity. The way this leads in is the two men meet together because they have a common interest in keeping ben at bay so he doesn't cause trouble for both of their countries. And so Ahab says, you know, it makes a lot of sense if we take back Ramoth-Gilead. And watch what Jehoshaphat says. He goes, you're right. He said, I'm with you, one in spirit. In fact, if you want to write this down, you can. Practically speaking, this man Makes sense when he says to him, I am as you are, my horse is your horses. He goes, Dude, going to war against him and taking that land back makes sense in every rational estimation that I have. Let's count the cost physically, count the cost of going to go into war, let's count the cost to, again, ethically. I think this is something that we should do to push Benedict back so he doesn't try to come in and take over the whole country again. But he says, Shouldn't we ask God? what he wants us to do, too. Now, don't miss this, because we are in a city that makes really good, rational decisions. We think it through. It's part of who we are most of the time. We think it through. Some of the most brilliant minds in the world right here in this city, and we think it through. Even on the decisions that rationally make the most sense, Jehoshaphat says we should still first seek the Lord and his guidance before we make a decision. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? How do the godly process making a major commitment? Number one, seek the Lord's guidance through prayer, scripture, and godly others. Let me say that again. Seek the Lord's guidance through prayer, scripture, and through godly others. What a powerful thing for us to remember when it comes to making a decision, I could have preached this, by the way, as a sermon all by itself, but we've been creeping through this passage long enough, all right? Here's the deal. Seek the Lord's guidance through prayer, scripture, and godly others. If you've ever tried to seek the Lord's will in your life, whether it be who to marry, how to spend your money, what job to take, whether or not to move to D.C. or to move away from D.C., when you've had those major decisions, whether or not to connect yourself to a new friend where you truly are not just friends, but man, it is something where there is a deep connection you really love let them in to the truth of who you are. Those decisions are huge decisions, and we should seek the heart of God in those endeavors. But sometimes we picture God like the game Marco Polo. Do you ever play Marco Polo when you are a kid? Marco Polo is when you're in the pool, and one person who is blindfolded yells Marco, and then all the other people in the pool, wherever they are, yell Polo. And at that point, the person who's blindfolded or with their eyes closed, they start to drift to him. But what do the people in the pool do? They sneak over to another part to try to not get touched or not get found. When it comes to Almighty God and his will, so many times we feel like it's Marco Polo, where you sit there and you go, Marco, Lord, where are you? What do you want me to do? And the Lord goes, Polo, I'm right over here. <laughs> now I'm over here so you can't find me. Marco, where are you, God? I really need to know if I'm supposed to take this job. I really need to know if I'm supposed to date this person i really need to know if this is your will and direction for my life and the lord goes polo yes come over here i'd love to give you truth and information (laughs) but i'm gonna sneak away to the other side that is not the way our god works god is not hiding his will from you he wants to be found by you he wants his will to be known if you're taking notes write this down god is not hiding his will from you he wants you to find it God is not hiding his will from you. He wants you to find it. Then how in the world does God reveal his will to us? It's those three ways. Number one, through prayer, through seeking the heart of God, and then through the power of the Holy Spirit, he leads us like a joystick in our gut to and away from things. But so you know it's not you thinking that way, and it's the Spirit speaking to us. We have his word as the hard line of, as the hard line of truth because God cannot go in contradiction to his word. And then we've got godly others, those who point us to the truths of Scripture, and those who also affirm that the Spirit has spoken to us in the same way that the Spirit has spoken to them on our behalf. I've told you a bit of this story before. It was a really defining moment for me in ministry. We had a young man, um, after a service where I had preached on this principle, and after it was over, high school student, he comes up during the time of invitation, tears in his eyes and the young man says I think God's asking me to do something awful I said what is it and with tears in his eyes this young man said I think God is telling me to kill my family I said son I don't discount that something in your head is telling you to do this but I promise you it's not God he goes how can you know how can you know He says, you don't know how loud they are. How can you know? And I said, because thou shalt not commit murder. I said, God would never ask you to do something like that. I said, it's not in his word to do so. He breaks. We immediately went and found his mother. And you know what we found out weeks later? He was diagnosed with schizophrenia. He had a chemical imbalance. And he needed help. He evens out. There were voices telling him to do these things, but they weren't God. And he needed a godly other to be able to say to him, here's why God's not telling you to do that. It doesn't go in accordance with his word. For some of you, there are things that you are asking God if you're supposed to do, and you're not feeling a kick from the Holy Spirit, but God's word is very clear. You should run screaming from that endeavor you should run screaming from that commitment because it's not biblical. And then there are some of you who are praying about things that you absolutely should do and commit to because God's word is super clear on it and you are wasting time asking God if you should do it because you've been commanded to do it in scripture. God's not hiding his will from us. He wants to be found. He wants his will to be found. Matthew 7, 7, and 8 say it this way. Save your spot there in 1 Kings and read Matthew 7, 7, and 8. Some of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. Here's what Jesus says. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find... "...knock, and the door will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks, receives." Underline, "...for everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. Now stop right there for just a minute. A lot of times, we picture God like this genie or Santa Claus, and because of that, when we read the beginning of 7-8, what we hear there in Matthew is, if I ask for it, if I rub the genie lamp, the genie better provide what it is that I've asked for. It says here in Scripture that we can do so. But in context, he's talking about wisdom. He's talking about insight. He's talking about purpose and direction for your life. He who asks, receives, he who seeks, finds, he who knocks on the door, that door to wisdom will be open to him. The idea of the open door is access to almighty God, to his mind, to his wisdom, and to his direction. How do the godly process make a major commitment? You gotta pray about it. You gotta seek scripture. And then honestly and openly present to a godly other, just like that young man had the courage to do, and get wisdom and insight from someone who's studying the same Bible that you're studying, who's striving to live as a disciple. If you're taking notes, I got three little questions here. Usually I just do one, but I got three questions. You ready? Have you prayed about it? What does the Bible say about it? And what do godly people in your life say about it? He said it again. Have you prayed about it? What does the Bible say about it? and what do Godly people in your life say about it? Whenever you're making any major decision, I run through and this is the thing. sometimes preachers can just preach stuff to try to get the points. This is what I do with every single major decision I make. I go through the checklist. Have I prayed about it? What's the Bible say about it? And what do Godly people that I truly trust say about it? You're ready? now flip over again to First Kings chapter 22. And now let's look at verses six through nine. This is so Ahab, by the way. Are you ready for this? For those of you who've been around for this study, I mean, this is just a microcosm of his whole story. Are you ready for this? Watch what happens. It says, so the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men. These are not godly men, by the way. These are the ones in his court, the politically appointed prophets, okay? About 400 men. It says, and he asked them, shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Remember, 400 men. Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into your hands. Now, you've got to picture this. You don't just bring in 400 people, and they go, yep, good idea. This is a production. He knows that Jehoshaphat is coming, and he wants to take back Ramoth Gilead, so he has set up the pageantry of the moment, and what happens? They march in, and he goes, well, men, what should we do? Should we take back the old land should we take back the mother country should we do this and all of a sudden they go yes we should take it gotta dance gotta dance they break into a musical number right whatever it takes to sell this thing 400 people crying out but remember Jehoshaphat is a godly man and Jehoshaphat is one who has not been in the lunacy of Ahab look at what happens next in verse 7 it says but Jehoshaphat asked is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of circle highlight and underline that 400 men screaming do it do it god says do it do it do it god says do it and all of a sudden jehoshaphat goes i don't sense the spirit of yahweh on a single stinking one of them he goes is there not a prophet of yahweh you know the faith that we share as countries as brothers as jews he says, is there not a prophet of the Lord that we can inquire of? You ready for this? Watch verse eight. This is so Ahab. The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, there's still one man whom I, we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never says anything good about me. All right? Underline that. I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me. But it's always bad. He's Micaiah, son of, son of Imlah. And look at this. Jehoshaphat the wise says, the king should not say that. Jehoshaphat replied, So the king of Israel called one of his attendants, his officials, and said, bring Micaiah, the son of Imla, at once. Underline the words at once there. Can I tell you why one scholar said at once is important? Remember, Elijah, prophets roamed and were like the wind. They were hard to pin down and to find. Micaiah is most likely in prison. He's been imprisoned for telling the truth to the king, and the reason he's able to show up at once is because they've got him in the dungeon there in town. Now, here's what's interesting. If you're taking notes, write it down. How do the godly process making a major commitment? Number one, seek God's guidance through prayer, scripture, and godly others. And number two, separate the truth from peer pressure. Separate the truth from peer pressure. In this story, 400 prophets of political position claiming to have spiritual authority, all crying out in unison, pale in comparison to the one dude in jail for telling the truth. That's how valuable the truth in your life is. It's worth More than the 400 involved in the pageantry trying to tell you what you want to hear so they can get you to do what they want you to do. If you're taking notes, write this down. One honest voice in your life is worth more than 400 telling you what you want to hear. Let me say that again. One honest voice in your life is worth more than 400 telling you what you want to hear. Now just for the record, there are some of you that heard this and went, yep, that's why I say brutal truth to every friend I've ever had. Can I just tell you a spoiler alert? You probably don't have very many friends, all right? Brutal truth, there is time to caution an individual because of truth that's been given to you. But if you're the type of person that has to poo-poo on everybody's parade every time you talk to them, you are not their friend. There are times where the truth is hard, and there are times to rejoice people. There are times to be proud for people. I found this. The ones who really cling to brutal truth above all else, where they do it every time, they also get very, very jealous when you have blessing that falls on your life, and then they deeply struggle acknowledging that blessing. They're first in line to claim brutal truth when someone's screwed up, but man, they really struggle rejoicing when times are good. If that's you, try to make it an effort in your brain to have 10 positive conversations for every one brutal conversation. Now, just for the record, the Lord calls for that truth, you have it. But really try to make sure in your life that you aren't the one that just comes in and rains fire and brimstone down on a person every time you meet together. Nobody wants to be friends with that guy. Nobody wants to be friends with that lady. Again there has to be some balance for it to be true friendship. And then for the rest of you, on the other side, sometimes I'm just going to call it, you're a coward. you got to have the guts to speak the truth and not just be the one that leans on the positive conversations. It says in Scripture, a friend loves at all times. That beautiful little word there is to let us know when times are good and blessing is flowing, And then, when a tough conversation has to be had, a true friend loves the whole gambit, loves at all times. Those people who tell you the truth are worth more than gold, aren't they? My dad was so good at this. Um, And one story, some of you probably heard this one before, it was very influential on me. In the stretch of six months that my dad and I worked together um, at the church in Lubbock before we moved to D.C., Um, My dad was the pastor of our sending church. I was working as his right-hand guy. I was the the former interim pastor and serving as the associate pastor at the time at the church. And uh, it was so cool because I was the head of the search committee, and so I was technically my dad's boss for six weeks, which was awesome. I just want to lay that out there. In the middle of that time... Lubbock Texas where I 'm from that usually gets one to two inches of snow per year I mean if that right usually one snowstorm per year this particular year was slated to get a foot of snow and everything's so flat and there 's such heavy wind the drifts were going to be extra high that was what was predicted anyway to happen in Lubbock and so preemptively a foot of snow coming down where we were at in West Texas all these churches started canceling preemptively because the blizzard was supposed to hit and be the worst on Sunday morning so all these churches are canceling. They're putting out their their, uh, their statements and whatnot. And I'll never forget, we're sitting in staff meeting, and uh, the church at the time was about 1,500 people. And so, again, a good group coming in. People in Lubbock don't know how to drive on ice, you know. And so there was just all this talk about canceling, swirling around. And then we're at staff meeting on Tuesday before the Sunday meeting. And I remember we're sitting together with the staff, and the guy who was serving as the executive at that time, he looks over at my dad and goes, well, we have no choice. We have to cancel services this Sunday. And I'll never forget, dad goes, um, why? He said, because this church is canceled, that church is canceled, this church is canceled, this group is canceled, and here was the deal. It wasn't that that didn't matter, But whether or not other churches were doing this, the peer pressure of the other churches doing it was not a good enough answer. And I remember, Dad looks over and crosses his arms, and then he said something that will always stick with me for the rest of my life. Dad said, anytime a man tells you I have no choice but to go a certain way, he said, take a long, hard look at the other path. I've never forgotten that. All of a sudden, Dad said, so tell me the reasoning why, other than other churches are doing this, that we should do it. The room got real quiet because we knew he was making a statement. At that point, he said, how about we do this? How about we plan so that we can facilitate a service? And then he got real worked up and said, at this time, Christians in Darfur are worshiping knee-deep in water today. He said, I think that we can handle a little snow in Lubbock, Texas. You know what happened? Anytime you try to plan in advance for weather, there was two inches of snow, that was it. Every church in town except us canceled, and there was two inches of snow. That Sunday morning was one of the biggest in the history of the church. Do you know why? Because it wasn't just our people that came, most of the pastors in town came to church that Sunday morning and participated in worship with us. It was insane to watch the way that the Lord took care of it. The point of that was not that you never cancel. The point of that was that you find the nugget of truth and you don't just like lemmings follow the crowd. In a city that is a celebration, rightfully so, of democracy, you have to remember when it comes to matters of faith, we do what's right because it's right, not because public opinion dictates so. It's why you hear me say regularly, politics, politicians, and policies are always changing, but the word of God stands forever, amen? There is no politician that could lead us better than Jesus, and there is no law that could govern us better than Scripture. There are going to be things that are for that are part of the law and things that are against the law that our faith stands for or against. At the end of our days, we stand on the side of the truth, that's how we have to be it came to a head for me personally at the start of the pandemic like many of you we had some pretty hard decisions to make and one of the most important moments for me as a pastor here was watching my dad teach that lesson and then we had because of city mandate which we will still continue to abide by Because of city mandate, we had to go all virtual. And in the beginning, that was very hard for me. One of my dad's last things he ever said to me was don't ever cancel. Remember what happened on that snow day, don't ever cancel. I'll never forget, we were recording on Friday night for our Sunday morning services about a month into the pandemic. And that was the day that President Trump made the call for all churches to be considered essential and that all churches could open up. And I remember we had such heavy city restrictions at that point, all of a sudden I'm sitting at the back about to come up and preach, and I'm preaching on the video, which is weird enough, right, recording on Friday for something we'd air on Sunday. We have all this uncertainty swirling about, and I'm at the back about to walk up and preach on the video, and my phone just starts dinging over and over again. One group saying, if we open up before the vaccine has hit 80% of our community, then you're a murderer. And then I've got another group that are hitting saying, if you don't open the doors on Sunday, then you're a coward. I've got both of those coming in because all of us, all of us had a way that we wanted things to happen during that stretch. I'm about to cry there at the back because again, it's so heavy. I know that in the end, there's going to be a right way to have done this and a wrong way to have done this. And Jordan Davis, who's up here leading today, Jordan Davis was the one seeing it because his phone was blowing up too. He worked in policy. And Jordan walked to the back and he goes, I know you're getting the same text that I am. He then said, as a godly other in my life, he said, whatever you decide, we're with you. He said, I have a way I want this to go down. He said, each one of us have a way that we want this to go down. But you are the one that God has placed in the position of leadership. He said, I believe you hear from the Lord, and whatever it is you choose to do, we're with you. Guys, I can't say that we've been perfect through the pandemic, but I know for me personally, as the leader of the church, I can stand before God, and we did the best we could with the information that we had, with the way that the Spirit led and spoke to me, with the fact that, praise God, there has not been a single outbreak from our church that's been traced back to us at any point We knew that we couldn't stop the virus from coming through those doors, but we could stop the spread once people were in here through social distancing and adhering to the protocols. Separate the truth from the peer pressure. You can't please everybody. If you hadn't figured that out yet, you will. You can't please everybody. You just do what the Lord tells you to do. It begs the question, are you following public opinion without identifying the truth? Are you following public opinion without identifying the truth? If so, by the way, you may be joining a mob. Do you realize that? If you are following public opinion without actually considering what the truth is, you may be joining a mob. Or you may be getting suckered into putting your name on something you never wanted your name on. Be careful what you commit to, especially with your feet. You ready? Now flip back over to 1 Kings chapter 22. And we'll finish up the story today. 1 Kings 22 starting in verse 10. So again, he goes, bring Micaiah, the son of Imlah, at once. Bring him up from the prison cell. I love verse 10's first word. It says dressed. Underline that word dressed because that's what happens to all of this stuff. It gets dressed up. Dressed in their royal robes. Underline their royal robes. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah were sitting on their thrones. Underline sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance to the gate to Samaria. Underline at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate to Samaria. With all the prophets prophesying before them. Underline with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now this is crazy. Look at verse 11. Now Zedekiah, son of Caniah, had made iron horns. Underline had made iron horns and declared, this is what the Lord says. With all, with these, you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. And the messengers who had gone to Summer Micaiah said to him, look, as one man, the other prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said as surely as the Lord lives I can only tell him what the Lord tells me. Stop right there for just a minute. You've got to picture the pageantry that's taking place in this moment. They are ready and they are standing at the gate. They've brought the thrones of the king of Israel to the boundary point between their two lands. The part that brings them together and they go we got 400 prophets here. We've got the kings dressed in their royal robes. We've got the thrones out front. We've got all the pageantry. They're all singing the final number. Gotta dance, Ramoth Gilead. We're gonna win it back. I mean, they're doing all this stuff, all this pageantry. And guess what they are waiting on? A prisoner to come out and tell them the truth. In fact, the attendant looks at him and says, there's 400 prophets that are gonna have this on their head. He looks at him and says, all you got to do is go along with them and you can get out of jail. It's not going to be on you. Nothing's going to happen to them because there's 400 of them. They're not going to kill the whole group. You can get out of jail and stop being persecuted. And Micaiah looks and says, but the truth will always be the truth. His character is tied to it. Before he makes a commitment, he says, as surely as the Lord lives, I can only tell him what the Lord tells me. If you're taking notes, write this down. How do the godly process making a major commitment? Number one, seek the Lord's guidance through prayer, scripture, and godly others. Number two, separate the truth from peer pressure. And number three, separate the truth from the marketing. Separate the truth from the marketing. The thrones don't matter. The truth is the truth. The robes don't matter. The truth is the truth. The dude wearing the Loki helmet with the iron horns for you Marvel fans, all right? The dude wearing the horned helmet, which, how weird is that example in the world that we live in? The dude wearing the weird horned helmet is not the voice of the truth no matter how loud they yell and no matter what it is they want to lead you into. We have a situation here where he says the truth is the truth. Now, just for the record, there are times when the crowd is on the side of the truth, But the pageantry and the marketing are extra pieces. We are children of the light and seekers of the truth. Amen? That must be the church, especially during these times. If you're taking notes, write this down. Find the core truth in what's being presented to you. Find the core truth in what's being presented to you. Best example I can give to you this, by the way, is the lie that is south of the border. Okay, have you ever been south of the border before? Okay, any of you who've ever driven from here to Florida know the joy that is south of the border. That is the border between North Carolina and South Carolina. They, for hundreds of miles, paint this picture that there is a magical land, better than Disney World, that awaits you called south of the border. I mean, again, hundreds of miles of signs, probably more than 100 signs that you see on that drive in that stretch. And I'm telling you, we're driving driving as a family to Florida for the first time. We're making that drive down. And I mean, the kids are like, we want to go to south of the border. I mean, this place looks amazing. And I mean, we're just like, all right, we're going to do it. I don't know why we're going to Disney World. We could have gone to south of the border, right? And then all of a sudden you get there and it is like a horror movie amusement park, all right? If you've ever seen a horror movie amusement park before, we drive down and we get to South of the Border and we were like, this was false advertising on every level. Like seriously, if I was going to record a horror movie, I would make it at South of the Border. We get there, the kids have been built up this moment so much, they had this playground, and we take the kids to play at the playground, the kids all got amp bites at the playground. I mean, that was the experience, and it was just like, this was not what was marketed to us on the side. Okay. The truth, the truth is the truth. And it's the reason why you hear laughter in here. Everybody who's made that drive knows what I'm talking about. It's just the way that it goes. It's just the way that it happens. Separate the truth from the marketing. When we don't, we end up in big trouble and then we can end up endorsing something or we can end up missing something that we deeply needed to know what was going on. I want to close with a passage of scripture And I can honestly say it's maybe my least favorite passage of Scripture there is. Look at Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, and we're going to look at verse 16. The reason that I hate this passage so much, there's a beautiful thing that takes place in it, but it is the bullying of Jesus before he goes to the cross. And the graphic nature of what happens, it always just shakes me. I was one who was bullied as well. I think many of you can, uh, uh, can, uh, uh, can understand, can empathize, uh, and uh, you had similar things that happened to you. In this passage, we get a play-by-play in the bullying of Jesus where they are trying to get him to recant that he is the Son of God so that they can call him a fool instead of crucifying him. Look at Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 20. Watch the way that they mark it here and pretend like what they've done doesn't actually exist. Here's what it says. It says, so the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace. That is, into the praetorium. And they called together the whole company of soldiers. Underline the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head. Underline again and again they struck him on the head. And it was with a staff. And they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes. Underline, they put his own clothes on him. And then they let him out to crucify him. I've always found it interesting. They take Jesus out. They put the crown of thorns on him. But then, Mark makes sure we know, they put the crown of thorns on and then... They hit him in the head with the staff like they nailed the thorns into his cranium. And they spit on him. They stripped him naked. They put him in a purple robe to belittle him. And then after they'd done all these things and he didn't recant, they just put him in his own clothes. You pretty up the marketing. And then they sent him outside like nothing had happened. Just for the record, the Son of God loved you that much that he endured sin and shame that he did not deserve. He loved you that much. He took our place in that circumstance. But the marketing, the marketing just made it look like he was feeble and weak when the truth was he had been viciously bullied before he ever carried the cross up the hill. Find the truth find the truth and look past the marketing. I got one last little question for you. you ready for this? Have you looked past the lipstick? Let me say that again. Have you looked past the lipstick? Before you commit to something, have you looked past the peer pressure and the marketing to what is actually true for you, to what is actually true in the circumstance so that you can base your life around it? When we don't do that we end up joining the mob and endorsing things that we were never by God intended to endorse. We connect ourselves in commitment to people that we were never meant to be committed to. Or we avoid commitment with somebody that the Lord has ordained that we connect with, like him or someone that he set aside for us. I love you guys. Thanks for listening today. My prayer is that if you need to make a commitment that you would do it today and that if you need to run screaming from something that you would have the courage to do that too. Let's bow our heads for prayer.